Oftentimes before um, the service on the screens where we put the words of the music, in the background is a photograph, and sometimes it's hard to figure out what it is, especially probably today's background. In fact, at yesterday evening's service, I was trying to figure out, what is that picture? I don't remember seeing that. But as the worship was going up, it was a screen picture of the caves of En Gedi, where David fled from Saul in the stronghold of the rocks down near the Dead Sea, and it was a photograph of those rocks. And I thought it was significant because the theme of the Psalms is that God is our refuge, our hope, our hiding place. And so many of David's Psalms had that as a theme of worship. And he even wrote some of those Psalms in those caves of En Gedi. And so that was the picture screen behind the words uh, for worship. Then also, before we start our series, our message today, um, I'm in the process of writing on several topics in little brief booklets. And uh, we have three of them available now in the bookstore, one on unforgiveness, one on temptation, and everybody's favorite, procrastination. So uh, you can get it when you get around to it. Uh, that's in the bookstore. <laughs> Let's now turn to Psalm 8, please, the eighth psalm. Philosophers have asked the same question that Psalm 8 asks. The question is, what is man? And there are as many answers to that as people who have lived or philosophers who have lived. The answers range all the way from Mark Twain's Man is a Machine to Blaise Pascal and him saying that man is a reed, the flimsiest thing in all of nature. To going way out on a limb, like Shirley MacLaine, who said that man is simply a higher self with a Christ consciousness and reincarnated several times. The best way to answer the question, what is man, is not by imagination, that is, let me figure out what I think man is, but by revelation, what God has revealed to us in his word what man is. If I go by imagination, I begin with myself. And I work out from myself, and eventually the danger is I will create God in my image, after my likeness, in my imagination. If I begin with revelation, then I have who God is and who God says man is in that perspective. And that's what David does in Psalm 8. David writes about man and his God. He begins with God being glorious, being majestic, and then he relates man to God and to the world around him. So the theme of Psalm 8 is the greatness of God and the place of man in relation to God and the creation. We find in Psalm 8 that man is not just a biological machine on the level of an animal, but man is created in the image of God. And that's what I want you to see today. You are created in the image and in the likeness of your creator. A Native American told about one young brave who found an eagle's egg and placed the egg in the nest of a group of prairie chickens. And when that eaglet hatched and grew up among all of the prairie chickens, it, it acted like a prairie chicken. 
It didn't know it was an eagle. It did what prairie chickens do. It scratched in the dirt to find seeds and worms. It uh, cackled like a chicken. And it uh, fluttered its wings, flying intermittently, no more than just a few feet off the ground in little intermittent increments and spurts. It didn't know what it was. Years passed by, and this eagle was now old. One day, this eagle looked up in the sky and saw this majestic bird scarcely moving its wings, soaring above the canyons. He looked up and said, What is that beautiful bird? And one of the neighbor prairie chickens said, That is an eagle, the chief of all the birds. But don't give it a second thought, he said. You could never be like him. And so that eagle, looking up, looked back down, never gave it a second thought and died thinking it was a prairie chicken rather than an eagle. Don't make the same mistake. You are not a prairie chicken. You are meant to soar in the position God puts you. In relationship to creation, you're one thing. But in relationship to your Creator, you're another. Let's look at how David sets it out. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So these two great themes now emerge. The greatness of God or the praise of God. And then secondly, the place of man. The place of man. The praise of God and the place of man are the two themes of Psalm 8. Verse 1 and 2 set out the praise that should be given to God. David begins by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent or awesome, great is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Notice that the psalm doesn't begin with man. It begins with God. It starts off revealing God, celebrating God and His greatness, His majesty, and then, and only then, it places man inside that framework. This is God. He is glorious. He is majestic. His glory is above the heavens. Then it begins to set man in that cosmic framework. That's an important truth. It's a way of saying you can never understand what man is, who human beings are, until you first see that they are God's creatures with a responsibility to the Creator. And part of that responsibility is to praise and worship God. That's what David does first. He begins not by saying, man, great man. He says, oh, Lord, our Lord. How excellent is your name in all the earth. And then it 
closes out with the same kind of thought. Verse 9 is the same wording, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. David was a worshiper. So many of the Psalms reflect a heart of a man who passionately loved and worshiped God. And did you know that that is to be our occupation? In Revelation chapter 4, it's written, I think, best in the King James. It says, Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. God placed you on the earth with a special responsibility towards your Creator, and that's to worship Him, to praise Him. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with this question. It asks, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And it was one of David's priorities. In fact, the Scripture is dominated with worship. I don't think you could turn to any book, any chapter, any section of the Bible without finding the dominant theme of God's creation is to worship the Creator. It's a priority. Question, is it your priority? Do you come to church to worship? Is that your mindset? Do you come prepared already? Do you prepare your heart to seek and worship God? You know how many people go through life You know what the aim of many people going through life is? What can I get out of life? You know how many people come to church with that same mindset? What can I get out of the sermon? What can I get out of the songs? On a scale of 1 to 10, how can I get blessed? But the songs and the sermons are meant to be stimuli to cause us to worship God. David does that in his life. Notice what he says about God. Verse 1, the first couple words, O Lord, and then our Lord. He goes from God as God, Lord, but then Lord, our Lord. You've made a covenant with Israel. Now later on in Psalms, he'll narrow it even further. He'll talk about my Lord, my God, my refuge, my strength, my stronghold. Not just the Lord, not just our Lord, but my Lord. My point is that David's relationship with God was personal. It was intimate. It was not a second-hand relationship with God. He knew God and wanted to know God personal. Now, I grew up in church week after week singing songs to a God I didn't know personally. I knew about Him. I knew His name, God. I knew His Son's name, Jesus. I knew there was a third party to it, the Holy Spirit. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't care. It wasn't personal. It was just, oh, Lord. But it wasn't a personal relationship with the living God. And maybe that's your experience. Friday afternoon, I had the privilege of doing a funeral of a dear saint. She'd been coming to the church for a long time, and she finally went to heaven. Her name was Savannah Bradford. What a dear, godly woman. She died like I want to die. A few days before her death, I was in her bedroom at home, and we were gathered around and gave her communion. And she said, Pastor Skip, I just want you to know I'm filled with hope, filled with joy. And she kept talking about my Jesus. I'm going to see my Jesus. And my Jesus said this, and my Jesus said that. It wasn't the good Lord said. It was my good Lord 
Do you have that kind of a relationship? Can you say, Oh Lord, our Lord, Oh Lord, my Lord? Is it personal? Do you know him personally? Remember Jesus said to Nicodemus, Mr. Religion of the New Testament, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. You too have to be born again. It's not just my parents' God, my grandmother's Jesus. He has to be yours. There's no two-for-one family rate specials. It's something that is done individually. And let me say that if you haven't experienced personally this life through Jesus Christ, that you can still come to church, you can still read your Bible, but you're a counterfeit. doesn't mean you're a bad person, but you're a counterfeit. It's sort of like a, a counterfeit $20 bill. Let's suppose for a moment in your pocket now or in your wallet, in your purse, it's a $20 bill that's fake. But you don't know it. You're not a banker. You're not an expert. So you go out after church and you fill up your car with gas. Some of your cars would take twice that, but you spend the $20 and you get gas. Now the $20 bill is in the cash register of the gas station. The manager of the gas station takes your 20 and other bills and uses that to buy gas to fill his tanks underneath the gas station to replenish the supply. And now the $20 bill that you gave him, he gives to the company. And now the $20 bill resides at company headquarters. And let's say the owner of the company takes that money and goes out and buys groceries that evening. Now the $20 bill is in the cash register of the grocery store and the chief grocer takes the money and takes it to the bank to deposit it. The banker, knowing a lot more about money than you or I or the gas station manager or the owner of the company, looks at it and says, these are all good, but this one $20 bill, it's a counterfeit. It's a fake. And he pulls it from circulation. While it was in circulation, it did a lot of good, right? Got you gas. Got the gas station their gas. Got groceries. But eventually, though it did good, it will be recognized as a fake and pulled from circulation. And so it is with people. You might be a counterfeit Christian and do a lot of good while you're in circulation. But eventually, you will be stopped at the bank. And God will look over your life and say, you know, it wasn't really personal. You really didn't personally accept and know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Though you did a lot of good in circulation, in the end you will be discovered as a counterfeit. So David in a personal way, gives glory to his God. Verse 2 is out of the mouth of babes, not just out of David's mouth comes worship. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength, or as another translation puts it, praise. The word means strength, loudness, or praise. Because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. It's awesome. In one thought, David is lofty. He says, God's glory is above the heavens. It's so great that it's above the heavens. Therefore, the heavens themselves can't adequately express God's greatness. And yet, David goes down to an infant now. As if to say, God's truth and God's revelation is in such simple enough terms that even a child can understand it. 
And not only that, but through the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you've ordained strength or praise. That sometimes the most perfect praise is found out of the lips of a child. Children in their simplicity can outstrip adults in their profundity. Just simple, God, I love you. Beautiful praise of a child. Spurgeon said, how often will children tell us of a God whom we have forgotten? Parents, have you noticed that? How your kids will sometimes remind you, the parent who taught them about God, about God. Daddy, we didn't pray. Why did you eat? Oh, oh, well, uh, I was going to pray afterwards, really. Children will remind us of God. One time Jesus put a child in the midst of those that were gathered around him and said, unless you become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. He took and said, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That's how we enter the kingdom, by humbling ourselves. Why children? Because children, it seems, are untainted in their faith. It seems so instinctive for a child to say, I believe in God. In fact, I think you have to deliberately plant a lie into the heart of a child to get the child not to believe in God. Parents have had the experience of going up to their child and saying, Where is Jesus? Only to have their child say, In my heart. So quickly and so instinctively. There was a Christian widow in Scotland She didn't have much money, but she had a lot of kids. She had to feed them and clothe them. Supplies were running thin, but she always raised her children to trust in God, no matter what. And she lived close to God herself. The day came when the pantry had worn completely thin, and the only thing left in the flour bin was one cup left of flour to make bread to feed the kids. As she bent over that barrel and scraped the bottom of it with her little scoop, suddenly she realized this is it, and her faith began to wane. She couldn't hold the tears back any longer. She just burst into tears as if to say, it's over. Her little son, Robbie, was standing nearby and tugged on Mommy's skirt and said in his Scottish dialect, Mither, what are you weeping about? (laughs) Didn't God hear you scraping the bottom of the barrel? And it dawned on her at that point, yeah, God heard that scrape. I'm waning in my faith, but God heard the scrape, and it took my son and his faith to remind me. God has perfected strength or praise. Children are so simple in their praise. Ever listen to a child pray? If you haven't, find one soon and ask them to pray with you and listen. They haven't learned how to do it yet. It's not, oh, gracious, magnificent God that inhabitest the lofty eternity. (laughs) It's just kids' stuff from kids' hearts. And it's so pure. One of my favorite little books on my bookshelf, right up to my right, next to my Bible, is a little book called Children's Letters to God. And I like to just cruise through it. It's a compilation of letters written to God, collected from different Sunday schools around the country and put into a little booklet. One person said, Dear God, I like the Lord's Prayer the best of all. Did you have to write it a lot or did you get it right the first time? (laughs) I have to write everything I ever write over and over and over again. A little boy said, Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) That's honest. 
One said, Dear God, please send me a pony. I never ask for anything before. You can look it up. <laughs> Let me look that up. Yep, that's right. A little boy named Elliot said, Dear God, I think about you sometimes, even when I'm not praying. Little Nora said, Dear God, I don't ever feel alone since I found out about you. A little boy said, Dear God, if you did not let the dinosaurs go extinct, we would not have a country. You did the right thing. (laughs) Signed, Jonathan. I don't know. There's something perfect about those expressions of praise and prayer. Jeff said, Dear God, it's great the way you always get the stars in just the right places. And one said, Dear God, I don't think anybody could be a better God than you. Well, I just want you to know that, and I'm not just saying that because you are God. Signed, Charles. You know, children's praise, prayers, and worship, they just seem to silence all the critics. That's what verse 2 tells us. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. One of my favorite little quips is about a little girl sharing about Jesus on a street corner with her friends and an agnostic walked by and wanted to argue with her to dismantle the faith of these kids. He said, young lady, do you believe all that stuff? Yes, sir. You believe in the Bible? Yes, sir. You believe the weird stories in it? I believe them all. You believe Jonah and the whale? Yes, sir. How could you believe that ridiculous story? How can a man survive with the acid in his stomach surrounding him, oxygen deprivation for a few days, and and came up with all these stumbling blocks? And she simply said, Sir, I don't know the answers to your questions, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. He said, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? She said, then you can ask him. (laughs) Something great about that little response of that girl. (laughs) You ask him. That you might silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, there was an episode in Jesus' ministry when he pulled out this verse about children and applied it. Do you remember that? It was on Palm Sunday. He had just come down the Mount of Olives and the crowds were saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And Jesus enters the temple complex. And as he gets into the temple courts, crowds of people are around him and children who had followed down that processional and heard them crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David as kids do, started picking up what they heard. And in the temple, they started saying to Jesus, Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna to the Son of David! The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, heard that and they were ticked off and said, Jesus, tell them to stop saying that. Jesus responded by quoting this. This is how he put it. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants... You have perfected praise. Now, if they were mad before, they were really mad now because Jesus said that. What did he do? He took and equated the children's praise in the temple with the praise of Psalm 8, which was praise to Creator God, saying, this is perfect praise. They're praising me. 
I am him. I am the creator. I am the Lord. They were so angry they wanted to kill him. Not only did he say that, but in saying they have perfected praise. He was also placing the scribes and the Pharisees who were against the children in the camp of being the enemy and the avenger of verse 2. He was saying their praise is perfect and you are the enemy of all that God is for. They didn't like that. But that's the praise of God. Let's now look at the second great theme of Psalm 8, which is the place of man in the conjunction of God and his creation. Verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Now David was a shepherd and he spent a lot of nights out in the Judean hillsides just looking up, considering the heavens, seeing the stars like studded diamonds across a black backdrop. And he must have thought of how big the universe is, although with the naked eye you can only see 3,000 stars. Just thinking how big this universe is and how small I am. I think one of the drawbacks of living in our advanced creature, comfort-oriented culture is that we lose touch with nature, with outside, with our environment. Our temperature is regulated in every place we go. There's carpet under our feet. We travel place to place in little bubbles, tightly sealed with music and air conditioning and heating. And we lose touch with considering what's around us and what God has done. If you think about just mankind, we are pretty puny, right? Just in relationship to this earth. You're one of 5.7 billion others like you. 5.7 billion other people occupy space on this dirt clod in space, this earth. It's 8,000 miles in diameter. It's spinning on its axis at 1,000 miles an hour. It's moving in motion with the Milky Way galaxy at the rate of 45,000 Miles per hour. So in relationship to just this earth, we're pretty puny. But then the earth in relationship to the universe is puny. The star that we revolve around is the sun. It's 93 million miles away. It's pretty far, 93 million miles. And yet you're going to feel it today when you go outside. You'll know it's there. It's pretty hot for being so far away. Now, that sun has a diameter of 268,000 miles. You could place 1,200,000 balls the size of the earth inside of it. David said, when I consider your heavens. When was the last time you did that? When is the last time you turned off the tube, you walked outside, you looked up, and you thought about how big it is up there, out there, and how little I am down here? I'll tell you what that does. It produces worship because it causes humility. It takes you from big, smart, puffed up, I'm something to... Wow. That's what David did. Friday night, I had the privilege of camping with my son and his friend, 
we went up to the mountains and camped out. And, you know, after cooking and setting up the tents and putting them to bed, all that there's left to do when you're camping is to consider. You know, there's no stereos, there's no television, you're just there and you consider. And so I looked up and I considered God's heavens. Friday night was a full moon. It was so bright, it was like somebody turned on a floodlight up there in the mountains. It was just shining in your face when you were trying to sleep. And I looked up at the moon and the stars and I thought, look at that moon, it's so bright, yet it's 200,000 miles away. Now, compared to the sun, it's not that far. You could walk to it in 27 years if you walk 24 miles a day on a ladder straight up to the moon. But so bright, 200,000 miles away. Yet, if I could travel the speed of light, as we've shared with you before, I could make it to the moon in 1.5 seconds. If I could go that fast, I could get to the sun in a few minutes. But if I wanted to get to the nearest neighbor star, Alpha Centauri, which is 25 trillion miles away from us, take me about almost four and a half years traveling that fast. If I traversed my galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, which is 10,000 light years thick by 100,000 light years long, if I could travel 100,000 years at the speed of light, if I could do that, I've just left my front yard. There are billions of other galaxies beyond it. So go from big and work towards yourself. Among the billions of galaxies that exist, in one corner of the universe is this thing called the Milky Way galaxy that's only 100,000 light years long. And in that, somewhere is this star and a bunch of little clods called planets revolving around it. And on one of those little planets called the Earth, only 8,000 miles in diameter, 5.7 billion people. And you're one of them. Makes you feel pretty small. It's like the British statesman who was elected to Parliament and walked into the great Westminster Abbey in London. Now, this guy was pretty well-known at the time. He was somebody. Everybody recognized him on the street. And he walked into this great cathedral with his little girl. Little daughter looked around at how big it was, looked at her father, and just her mouth was hanging open. He said, Honey, what are you thinking about? She said, Daddy, I was just thinking as I looked inside this great cathedral, that for being such an important guy as you are, you look pretty small inside here. You know, and when you go out and you consider the heavens, the work of God's fingers, you think, I feel pretty small inside here, considering the vastness of the universe. And so David's question is, since man is so small in his cosmic setting, why do you care so much? Think of how small you are, but God cares so greatly. David said in Psalm 139, Oh, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. God thinks about you. God cares about you. And what kind of thoughts does God think about you? I bet if I were to interview some of you, you'd say, God's against me. God's just waiting for me to fall, waiting for me to trip up. So many people have a warped idea of God's thinking toward them. God loves you. God is thinking, how can this person come to the realization of how much I love him? How much I want to do for them? As God said through Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 29, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good, not of evil, 
to give you a future and a hope. In Max Lucado's book, When God Whispers Your Name, he introduces it with these thoughts. He said, When I see a flock of sheep, I see exactly that. A flock. A rabble of wool. A herd of hooves. I don't see a sheep. I see sheep. All alike, none different. That's what I see. But not so with the shepherd. To him, every sheep is different. Every face is special. Every face has a story. Every sheep has a name. The one with sad eyes, that's droopy. The fellow with the one ear up and the other down, I call him Oscar. The small one with the black patch on his leg, he's an orphan with no brothers, so I call him Joseph. The shepherd knows his sheep. He calls them by name. When we see a crowd, we see exactly that, a crowd filling a stadium or flocking to a mall. When we see a crowd, we see people, not persons, but people, a herd of humans, a flock of faces. That's what we see, but not so with the shepherd. To him, every face is different. Every face is a story. Every face is a child. Every child is a name. The one with sad eyes, that's Sally. The old fellow with one eyebrow up and the other down, Harry's his name. The young one with the limp, he's an orphan with no brothers. I call him Joey. The shepherd knows his sheep. He knows each one by name. The shepherd knows you. He knows your name and he'll never forget it. And as God said to Isaiah, I have written your name on my hand. God's thoughts toward us. He's mindful of us. But now to that question, what is man? I've got to say that's the second most important question anybody could ask. The first most important question would be, who is God? Once you discover the truth of that question, in relationship to who is God, the second question would be, what is man? And as we said, many philosophers have sought to answer it. The secular humanist says, man is simply a homo sapien, the product of random chance over a long period of time. In other words, you are a cosmic accident. Doesn't that make you feel good? Doesn't that raise your self-worth? Yeah, I'm an accident. To believe that, you have no real reason or purpose for existence. Life is a series of whatever accidents. Aristotle described man as a political animal. Thomas Willis said man is a laughing animal. Ben Franklin said man is a tool-making animal. James Boswell, the gourmet, said man is a cooking animal. Now, in relationship to creation, we're small. But to answer what is man, we have to look at it in relation to the creator. And David does that. First of all, notice he says, you made him, God, you made him to be lower than the angels. First of all, God made you. You're, you're a special creation rather than the product of random chance. God is the creator. Your body reflects design. And if there is design, there must be a designer. God made you. However, there are brilliant men and women in our universities who are saying, God didn't make men. Men made God. There is no God, but men have this desire to worship something and believe in something, so man created God in his image. So you have imagination, 
that says man created God, and then you have revelation that says God created man. You have to take your choice. One will give you the dignity of life. Others will make you hopeless. You made him, notice, a little lower than the angels. So here you have the order of life. God, spirit beings, angelic beings, man, animals, plant life, and everything else under that. So we're lower than the angels who are above us, and we're higher than the animals who are below us. We're sort of in that middle link in the chain. Angels have a spirit and no body. Animals have a body and no spirit. A man has a body and a spirit. We're a little bit lower than the angels on this earth. One day we'll be ruling over angels, the Bible says. But we are greater than the animals. I think one of the dilemmas we face as modern man, I'd call it an identity crisis. We have stopped looking at ourselves as being just a little lower than the angels. So instead of looking up past the angels to God, we now look down at animals and raise them up to our level and say, Grandpa, we're related. I evolved from you. So rather than men looking up to God, we're looking down to the animal world. But did you know the word man in Greek, anthropos, we get the term anthropology, means one who looks up. But we've stopped doing that. We've degraded the position of man on the earth, and we look down to animals. So God made us. He created us. He made us just a little lower than the angels. Next, he crowned us with glory and honor, says David. That's a simple way of saying you're in God's image. You're crowned with God's glory. You're you're meant to reflect as a human being, God's glory, the glory of your creator as his creation. You're on display. And so as you reflect God's glory, that is an honor. You're crowned with glory and honor. Now, folks, that's a position, being in the image of God, to reflect the glory of your creator. That is a position that no dog has, no wolf has, no whale, no dolphin, no spotted owl, but human beings have. There are things that set you apart from the animal world. At least five things set you apart from animals. Number one, you have the ability to reason. You can evaluate. You can make logical decisions. You can originate thoughts, unlike an animal. Number two, you can make moral choices. You can say, I deem this as right, and I deem that as wrong on a moral basis. Number three, you have artistic creativity, like your creator, in his image. You can sculpt, you can paint, you can write, you can dream. Number four, you can have relationships of love. Now, animals can mate. Human beings can have relationships of love and dependence and intimacy, more than just a glandular reaction. And number five you have a thirst for God. I think every human being is brought into this world with at least the thought that there's something higher than I am, an ultimate truth somewhere. What is it? M. L. Bruner said, In the animal, we do not see even the smallest beginning of a tendency to seek for truth for truth's sake, to shape beauty for the sake of beauty, to promote righteousness for the sake of righteousness, to reverence the holy for the sake of holiness, The animal knows nothing above its immediate sphere of existence. 
nothing by which it measures or tests its existence. So you have God-given abilities to think, to choose, to create, to love, and to worship. Look now at verse 6. In relationship to the Creator and relationship to creation, David says we're also the manager over God's creation. You have made him, that is man, made a little lower than the angels, to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Creation, in a sense, was made for man. Didn't Paul say that God gave us all things richly to enjoy? And so man is the pinnacle of God's created order on earth, and all things are under him. He's to have dominion over them. That doesn't mean he has the right to trash them, to strip the earth of its natural resources, but dominion in the sense of developing it, tending it, and letting the earth serve him as God's pinnacle of creation. So on one hand, we're nothing in size. We're puny in the creation. On the other hand, seeing it through the eyes of our creator, we're at the top on this earth. We're the pinnacle of God's creation on earth. There was a Jewish proverb that was to be read with two separate cards. And on one card was written one thing. On the other card was written another thing. And the one who recited the proverb was to read two cards, one after the other. On one card it said, I am a worm. On the other card it said, the stars were made for me. That's the paradox of man. I'm a worm in comparison to everything that is so great and beyond me. Ah, but at the same time, the stars were made for me. The pinnacle of God's creation. So I think that means we ought to be ashamed when men act like animals. And I think we ought to be ashamed when animals, by nature, do better than people do by choice. We are to act with the dignity God gave us, made a little lower than the angels, having dominion to tend and guard the earth. Then I want to look and close with this thought, who we are in relationship to Christ. Look at verse 4, and I have precedence for this. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? When did God visit man? 2,000 years ago, when God came in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, to this earth. A society, a world that lost sight of God, a world that looks down to the animals rather than up to God, that looks to the animal kingdom and says, you know, I think we're pretty close. I think we evolved from you. A world that by and large has rejected God. So what does God do? He visits the earth in the form of the perfect man to get man to look back up to God rather than down to the animals. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 for just a minute because the author of Hebrews takes Psalm 8 and says that Jesus fulfills it. Hebrews chapter 2. Now that you're there, look at verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, 
or the Son of Man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. In that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. That is, Jesus came as a man. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for every man. Jesus came as the fulfillment of the eighth psalm, the perfect man, into this world, made a little lower than the angels, which means he was God. He, does, he is not, as the Jehovah Witnesses say, Michael the archangel, because he's made a little lower than the angels. He's not the spirit brother of Lucifer, as the Mormon church teaches. He had to be made lower than the angels, as a man, God in human flesh. Why? To taste death for us. So we need the perfect man to undo all that we have messed up. God places us on the earth to tend it. Sin has been brought into the world. We've goofed it up. Jesus came as the perfect man to live the perfect life we could never live, to die an atoning death on the cross, to get us to look up to God. Let me close then by just summing up the four great lessons that emerge from this psalm so that you don't forget it. Number one, the privilege that man has to worship God. That is a privilege, folks. You know why it's a privilege? Because if God has set his glory above the heavens, that means that the heavens and everything under them can never totally, adequately, completely praise God. Because God is greater than what he made. And yet... Being one of God's creatures, he allows me to worship him and even says that the simple worship of a child is noticeable. Second great truth, simple faith is better than complicated unbelief. A child's praise, perfect. David goes, wow, these heavens are vast. And God says, yeah, but I notice a child. Simple faith of a child. Number three, man is insignificant apart from his creator. Think about that. Apart from a creator, you're nothing. You're you're puny. In terms of your creator, you're the pinnacle. Crowned with glory and honor, a little lower than the angels. The image of God. Fourthly and finally, Jesus is the perfect man to cause you to look up. Quit looking down. You're not a prairie chicken. Soar. You're an eagle made in the image of God. May Jesus Christ cause you to look up to the Father, not look down, down to the animal kingdom. Not to say, brother, uncle, grandpa, but heavenly Father, I'm created in your image. That's where you have dignity as a human being. Father, we thank you for how Jesus came to reconcile man back to God. It's beyond our ability to fathom why you would take note of us. Not only do you take note of us, but you care for us. You know our names. You've written us on the palms of your hands. You love us so intimately. There's purpose. There's meaning in life. Because we are creatures made by a loving creator. 
And we thank you for the perfect man, Jesus Christ, who came and lived the perfect life that we could never live, died for us so that the problem of sin corrupting the creation could be dealt with. Father, I pray that we would be made complete today. Rather than looking down, we would look up to you. Created in your image, crowned with glory and honor, to give you glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.